0: Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome. Uh, I'm Rabbi Steve Einstein. I'm a a member of the board of CSP. And uh, filling in for uh, Ari Katz, uh, he uh, had a busy morning. (laughs) And uh, so did Amy. And uh, they are the proud parents of a new baby boy today. So we're all thrilled. Mazel So this is CSP's 17th year. And uh, we would like to thank all of our donors. We are a membership organization. And we depend on you. This is your scholar, therefore. And uh, if you are a donor or a member of the Legacy Circle, would you uh, stand now so we can recognize you and thank you for your continuing support? Thank you so much. Very nice. Okay. and consider becoming a member of the Legacy Circle if you are not already. If you're watching on the podcast, we will be happy to accept donations uh, on our website, www.occsp.org. All right, special thanks to our terrific sign-in uh, check-in team of Lois Weiss, Norman Witkin, Rochelle Amberson, and Davida Gregory. Did I get everybody? No. No, who do we miss? Ada. Ada. And Ada, thank you. And- and Ravel, thank you very much, ladies. Okay. Um, we have a lot of upcoming things uh, for CSP. Uh, you know, we've got something special multiple times a month, actually. And uh, you have some handouts. Uh, we have uh, Noah and Jonah. Uh, it's a brown bag uh, lesson given by Judy Klistner, who's one of the best teachers around. Uh, we have a weekend Shabbaton, Festival of Jewish Spirituality at Temple Beth el South Orange County with Estelle Franco. We have uh, Rachel uh, Korazim, who is also a fabulous teacher, coming back, and she's doing uh, uh, Anochi, Dialogues with God and Israeli Poetry, here on the campus on April 13th. And then uh, she's uh, also on the 15th gonna be speaking on Israel Diaspora Relations. And uh, we've got uh, Guri Stark speaking about uh, Gutmann, Rubin, and the history of Tel Aviv. Uh, Don't forget the CSP travels. If you've ever been on a trip with Ari, you're probably still in recovery uh, because they go from morning till night and beyond. The New York trip, there are two spots left for this coming October, and in July of 2019, it will be Lithuania and Poland. Um, I'm happy to see at least one person in with the CSP cap on today, and... uh, we have the CSP Cup Challenge Cap Challenge, once again this year. So take it to a, a, an exotic place and you could win. Uh, you can find all of our past lectures on iTunes. And the last thing is please turn off your cell phones. Um, I'm just going to give a very quick intro to our uh, speaker. Because uh, if you didn't know about him, you probably wouldn't have come today. So uh, Professor Lawrence Barron, held uh, the Nassiter Chair of Modern Jewish History at San Diego State from 1988 to 2012 and was a director of the Jewish Studies program there until 2006. He holds a PhD in Modern European Cultural and Intellectual History from the University of Wisconsin. He has uh, authored numerous books and articles and most notably for the subject today, he was the keynote speaker for Yad Vashem's first conference devoted to Hollywood and the Holocaust. As you know, tonight is the annual presentation of the Oscars. What better day to be considering the subject at hand? Dr. Barron.
1: Well, thank you for having me here. Lower this, you're tall. And in honor of the Oscars, I'm gonna go three hours. Hope hope you don't mind. Um, Many of you know one of the things I do before all my lectures is I write an overture. Uh, So here's my overture to this one. Oh, which movies garnered awards in the wake of the Holocaust? Which other ones were overlooked, nominated, but then they lost? Oscars are golden, but the glitter fades. Oscars are golden, golden, reflecting their decade. From real footage to feature films of the dead displaced and concealed, what could they show of genocide and what did they dare not reveal? Oscars are golden, but the glitter fades. Oscars are golden, golden, reflecting their decade. This year's Oscar ceremony will be the first in five years in which there are no Holocaust films that have either been nominated. Uh, or or which have the potential of winning awards. Indeed, since 1993, when Schindler's List received 12 nominations and won seven Academy Awards, Holocaust-themed movies have amassed 57 Oscar nominations and won 21 Oscars. When Spike Lee's documentary Four Little Girls Lost to the Long Way Home, about Jews returning after World War um, II, he commented, I would rather have been the Knicks in the fourth quarter, down 10 points, a minute left, playing the Bulls in Chicago, than have the odds that we faced running against a Holocaust film. But to demonstrate that more, uh, let me show you a clip from Ricky Gervais' series Extras uh, this is from two thousand nine. It's before Kate Winslet won her award, ironically for *The Reader*, uh, and um, this will give you an idea of where the Holocaust and the Oscars are today.
2: Actress? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm just an extra. You're the actress. Brilliant actress, by the way.
3: Yes, yeah, she's. I'm an actor as well. If there's a line going in this film, I'd love to be part of this because I'd, I'd just like to say, I think you, know, you doing this is so commendable. You know, using your profile to keep the message alive about the Holocaust.
2: My God, I'm not doing it for that. I, mean, I don't think we really need another
3: film about the Holocaust, do we? It's like, how many have there been? You know, we get it, it was grim, move on. No, I'm doing it because I've noticed that if you do a film about the Holocaust, guaranteed an Oscar. I've been nominated four times, never won. And the whole world is going, why hasn't Winslet won one? Death. yeah. That's it. That's why I'm doing it. Schindler's bloody list. Pianist. Oscars coming out of their ass. You yeah, well, good luck, then. It's a good plan. Yeah, thank
2: you. Good luck with your phone call. Okay. Uh, yeah. See you later,
3: yeah.
4: Can we go again? Yep, let's do it.
1: Now I need my glasses. But this uh, hasn't always been the case of uh, films about the Holocaust winning uh, Oscars. In the 15 years after World War II, documentary and feature films about the Holocaust were limited by their failure to acknowledge European Jewry as the primary target of Nazi genocide. They hinted at it, uh, many of them, or their tendency to provide very uplifting uh, endings to an unredeemable tragedy. I've been working for the past several years on compiling a database of every movie uh, that has been nominated or won an Oscar and also comparing it with uh, other award ceremonies, Golden Globes, Venice Film Awards, BAFTA, which is the British version, uh, the the, Silver Bear Awards from the Berlin Film Festival, uh, to see what was distinctive about how Americans came to identify the Holocaust in films. Uh, now, this is all based on a premise which may be totally wrong, which is that the Oscars really do represent uh, both a quality, a recognition of quality and a rec- recognition of the significance of a topic. Uh, and not to burden you with this, but there are people who do quantitative research on the Oscars and they compare the Oscars to other awards. They also look at the ratings that are given in various guidebooks, and the Oscars are the best predictor of the quality of a movie. Now, not necessarily the winner. The winner is studio politics and advertising and celebrities, but the nomination is by the branches of people who are actually in the field. Uh, so you have a branch for cinematographers and the only award that's actually, uh, nominations that are given out of the the best picture are done by the entire Academy. Uh, and so there you have a, a broader, uh, swath, but I'm arguing that the Oscars are a good way not only to, uh, get an idea of what important movies were being made about the Holocaust, uh, but more importantly, uh, what Americans thought the Holocaust was, what Hollywood thought the Holocaust was. Uh, And as I said, I'll compare these to other things like the Golden Globes to show you that there is a big difference. All right. Uh, There were feature films about the plight of Jews during World War II. Uh, They were limited because there was a rule through the Office of War Information that you weren't supposed to stress Jewish suffering above other groups. You could have movies about other groups, so the best... The first Holocaust movie is called None Shall Escape, made in 1944, uh, at least the one that really understands that a genocide is going on, but it's also about Poles uh, being persecuted by the Germans as well. Uh, and you know, Chaplin, all these movies either got nominations or uh, won awards, uh, but the way that the Oscars really introduced the Holocaust was through documentaries. There was no documentary category until 1941. There were what was called short live-action films and feature live-action films, which were usually documentaries, but the category was created largely to accommodate the war situation, Uh, that there were government teams out filming the war. We weren't in the war yet in 1941, but there was a slew of British... Uh, films, Canadian films, Australian films, and they nominated uh, 24 films (laughs) in 1942 uh, for the honor of being the best documentary, Uh, and uh, it was won uh, by a Canadian film, uh, but actually there were several winners at that time, and um, this was the beginning of the documentary. And then in 1942, I don't know how many of you have read this great book by Mark Harris, Called Five Came Home, uh, but it's about the major filmmakers uh, who were recruited by the U.S. Army to be part of the Signal Corps and how that experience changed their movies. George Stevens being the most famous, but John Huston, uh, you know, just a whole whole number of them. Some of them that you don't normally associate uh, with uh, Billy Wilder uh, with the making of these films. Uh, And so this became the award you gave to a government film. And certainly our first images, though we didn't know it was about the Holocaust, but about the Holocaust, came from Russian films, Soviet films, that were uh, screened in the United States, often redone, recut by the studios here, but that had pictures of the Einsatzgruppen murders. They weren't called that. There were just lots of dead Russians. Uh, Soviets, and that was the emphasis, you know, the Soviets, these, they were all victims of fascism, according uh, to Soviet movies. And then when the atrocity footage taken by the uh, the people who came in, you know, the uh, U.S. Signal Corps, as they liberated the camps, and by the Red Army Signal Corps, as they liberated the camps in Eastern Europe, as those films came in with the horrors Uh, Those became part of documentaries that were then released, Uh, and in 1945, they introduced a short documentary the year before and a long uh, feature documentary. Both films dealt with World War II, and both had footage of Jews, but as I said, these are statuettes of limitations, and so see if you can identify the Jewish reference. This is from... The True Glory, which was the official British and American film. Uh, Garson Canaan uh, and Carol Reed, two you know, amazing figures, filmmakers, uh, directed it. It's based on interviews with soldiers, and it kind of gives a day-by-day account of the war, but from a soldier's perspective. And this one section, two minutes out of about 80, is about the liberation of Belson.
2: These displaced persons, slave workers. They were sick, and hungry, from all over Europe. The roads were jammed with them. But they kept out of the way and didn't give us any trouble. Like a fellow said, there's a lot more than towns gonna have to be reconstructed. I wondered what was up when all R.E.M.C.
3: personnel in our lock down the stretch of Bill, as we were urgently called for. I soon found out we'd taken the Belson concentration camp. Well, I'm not squeamish. I've seen amputations, operations, deaths long before I went to the Army in
2: 41. I was a warden. I lost count of all the arms and legs I pulled out of the wreckage down in Croydon and got quite used to it. But this was different.
3: Very different. I i don't know any words big enough to make you understand what we all felt. All I can say, and I'm proud of this, is it. I had to fall out and be quickly sick in the courtyard. As
2: I say, I'm I'm not squeamish, but, well, I'm human, and thank God for it. The government sent a few of us congressmen over to see those camps, and if there's anybody left who wonders if this war was worth fighting, well, I wish they could have been along. There it was, right in front of us, fascism, and what it's bound to lead to, wherever it crops up. I talked to some of the prisoners, the ones that had the strength to talk. Their offenses were the usual Nazi crimes. You know, wrong religion, or wrong race, belonging to a union, or the wrong political party. In Germany, it led to over 400 camps, like the ones I saw. It was the worst thing I ever saw in my life. and. I wouldn't have
1: missed it for anything. I'm not going to do that. I have another one which has more atrocity footage. But the important thing here in this uh, atrocity footage is what's the clue there? Wrong race, wrong religion, no specific mention of Jews. Uh, similarly, if you go to Billy Wilder's Death Camps, which was the film uh, that was made about Dachau. Uh, it's it, um, the only mention of Jews is that there were 100,000 Jews who died at Maidonic uh, a lot more Jews died obviously uh, and the movie Hitler Lives by Don Siegel does the same thing it has a reference in which it says oh these are Jews the, the, it doesn't say these are Jews it says these are pictures from medieval ghettos that shows Jews by, and that's the only reference to Jews in the whole film Uh, but it was out there and these images if you look at the posters of uh, there are photos of theaters that are carrying the atrocity footage and people went to this Uh, and uh, you know be usually a double feature nazi death mills uh, with the maidanic footage and uh, this is how this initially gets out but in this very kind of generic way because jews were seen as victims because they were members of different countries, because they were citizens of different countries, not necessarily because they were Jewish. Uh, in Hitler Lives, though, one of the things I like that it starts to do, uh, and uh, this film by Don Siegel, who later became an important director, uh, one of the things it tr- attempts to do at the end is to link, it's about the authoritarian and uh, anti-Semitic, it doesn't say anti-Semitic, prejudice. Uh, let's say, racist um, culture of Germany, which even though Germany is defeated, is gonna be difficult to root out, and it focuses on the kids. How are you gonna you know, denazify a country where kids have grown up this way? And it ends with a section on American uh, fascists and anti-Semites and neo-Nazis. Uh, Fritz Kuhn, Father Coughlin, and warns people Against this Again, no, nothing said specifically about Jews, uh, but it's part of, a, of an effort that had started during the war, and I want to give you the quote from the Office of War Information, or actually the Office of uh, Bureau of Motion Pictures Guidelines, quote, "to emphasize that the United States is a melting pot, a nation of many races and creeds who have demonstrated they can live together in peace and progress." And during the war, the most popular way this was expressed is in what were called the platoon movies. And those were movies where you'd have an Irish guy and a Jewish guy and an Italian guy. And usually a black soldier, even though blacks weren't integrated into the armed forces yet. Uh, And uh, they would all get along very well together. The film that won an honorary Oscar in 1945 was The House I Live In. Uh, And this was a 15 minute short uh, that had been directed uh, by uh, one of, at the command really of um, Albert Maltz who was one of the Hollywood 10, uh, Merwin Leroy who was a, a progressive filmmaker and Frank Sinatra and Sinatra's the key here. Sinatra was very upset by what was going on. He felt he had been victimized as an Italian American Uh, He saw the kind of prejudice his musicians encountered while traveling in the South, black musicians, Uh, and when he heard about what the Nazis were doing about the Jews, he decided to give out St. Christopher medals, which on the other side had Jewish stars, Uh, and there was this song that had appeared in a review uh, in 1942, The House I Live In, uh, and it became kind of his anthem uh, and uh, the clip I'm going to show you is he, he's sung a song in the studio. He comes out into the alley and this is what he sees.
3: Somebody here for a lickin'? You bet, where? Yeah, but ten against one, that's not very fair. Come on, come on. What's it all about? None of your business. Scared to tell me? No, I'm not as scared. I'll fight you even. him. <laughs> not if I can help it. I just want to know why the gang war We don't like him. We don't want him in our neighborhood or going to our school. I've been living here as long as you. What's he got, smallpox or something? We don't like his role like His religion. Look, mister, he's a jerk. German- now, uh, hold on. I see what you mean. You must be a bunch of those Nazi werewolves I've been reading about. Mister, are you screwed! That's me. I'm an American. Well, what do you think we are? Nazis. Don't call me a Nazi. My father's a sergeant in the army. He's been wounded, even. Wounded, huh? Say, I bet he got some of that blood plasma. His wounded so bad he had to get it three times. Son, anybody in your family ever go to the blood bank? Sure, my mother and my father both. Uh-huh. You know what? I bet you maybe his pop's blood helped save your dad's life. That's bad. What's bad about it? Well, look, you see, your father doesn't go to the same church as his father does. That's awful. Do you think maybe if your father knew about it in time, he would rather have died than to take blood from a man of another religion? Would you have wanted him to die? Would your mom want him to die? No. Look, fellas, religion makes no difference, except maybe to a Nazi or somebody as stupid. Why, people all over the world worship God in many different ways. God created everybody. He didn't create one people better than another. Your blood's the same as mine. Mine's the same as his. Do you know what this wonderful country is made of? It's made up of a hundred different kind of people and a hundred different ways of talking and a hundred different ways of going to church. But they're all American ways. Wouldn't we be silly if we went around hating people because they combed their hair different than ours? Wouldn't we be a lot of dopes? My dad came from Italy, but I'm an American. But should I hate your father because he came from Ireland or France or Russia? Wouldn't I be a first-class fathead?
1: Anyways, then he sings The House I Live In, which I have to sing, uh, because I am running a campaign for it to become the national anthem. No one would ever take a knee if this were our national anthem. What is America to me? A name, a map, or a flag I see, a certain word, democracy. What is America to me? The house I live in, a plot of earth, a street, the grocer and the butcher, and the people that I meet, the children in the playground, the faces that I see, all races and religions, that's America to me. It's a wonderful show. I want it to be our national anthem. Then for, it's actually written by Abel Maripole uh, under a pseudonym and uh, uh, Earl Robinson. And Abel Maripol, if you know the history, is the family that adopted the Rosenberg children. Um, so these are lefties that wrote this, and originally the song is much stronger on race. Uh, and, um, but you notice in the film, Sinatra never mentions Jews. He says, you're a dirty, and then he, and, but the way he describes you know, the racial theory, that's what he's talking about. Uh, this set up a pattern for the Oscars, and though I'm not gonna talk about them, I think in 1947, the winner of the Oscar for best film, picture, Gentleman's Agreement, never would have been made but for the Holocaust. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, films that was nominated for Best Picture, Crossover, which if you've never seen is worth seeing one, uh, another early film about American anti-Semitism. Crossfire, Crossfire yeah. By Edward uh, Dimtrick. So, um, those are the kinds of movies that are being made. Now, why do I stress this honorary Oscar? You might say, well, what does that matter? Well, one, this was a film that was screened 20,000 times. Because remember, you used to go to the films and you had a double feature, right? And then you had usually a preview, sometimes it was a cartoon, sometimes it was a newsreel, this was one of the things. But then it got picked up by the National Conference of Christians and Jews, uh, the American Jewish Committee, the uh, Anti-Defamation League, and, and circulated through all sorts of schools. Uh, and so it had a much greater impact Uh, And this is true, you know, of these movies that aren't necessarily commercial movies. They have a second life because of the Oscars, and those that are commercial movies earn more uh, once they get the Oscar. Okay, Uh, I'm going to, I'm not going to show you more atrocity footage because you've seen enough. Just to say that in 1946, uh, there is a movie, The Stranger, uh, by Orson Welles, which is about a Nazi hunter in which has the first clips uh, of that atrocity footage put in a feature film and it earns a nomination for best screenplay Uh, and it is the first movie in which the word genocide is used. It's used wrong, again Jews aren't mentioned though it's clear the character they're searching for is anti-Semitic but uh, again it's this problematic relationship with saying the word Jew specifically. And that also had to do with the Nuremberg Trials, which uh, the four counts during the Nuremberg Trials, though they tried people and did say, you know, the Jews really got it the worst. uh, The counts had to be done in conjunction with the war over a number of different countries to be indicted. Uh, And um, Jews were usually talked about as members of other nationalities. There's a brief moment in the film uh, made for the Nuremberg trials, which, in which they say, of all the victims, the Jews suffered, them. but it's like one minute. You know, it's, it's very, very short. Uh, okay, let me shift over then uh, to 1944. Oh, one, one other little thing. Uh, the film that wins Best Documentary, short in 1946, is a film called Seeds of Destiny. Uh, it's about starving children, and it's clear some of the kids shown are Jewish, Uh, I've worked with the original script, which was for a movie, an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, The guy was told to cut it. It's done for for, UNRWA to raise money. Uh, Was told to cut it, he cut it to 60 minutes. They said it's still too long. He ended up showing 20 minutes. The original script does mention Jews, uh, but by the time you get to the uh, Final script, Jews aren't mentioned uh, again. But th- one of the important things, when it was nominated, there was a protest among the Academy uh, members saying, well, the war is over. Why are we letting these government-funded and you know, NGO-funded films compete with our films? And they tried to block it. But UNRWA uh, and uh, the US Army intervened on behalf. It's, as I work with these records, I discover how you get an Oscar. Uh, 1948 uh, is really the first important American Holocaust film after the war. Uh, it's Fred Zinnemann's *The Search*. Uh, Zinnemann had already uh, captured. Uh, he had. He was a child of Austrian Jews. He fled Austria in 1929, came to the U.S. He worked on documentaries. Uh, And one documentary you can find of his that's still online is about the plight of uh, displaced persons and refugees, 1942. It's basically warning them not to let smugglers bring you in because you might die, you know, Mm -hmm. they might abandon you. Uh, And then he made a film about uh, a concentration camp called uh, The uh, Seventh Cross uh, in 1944, which has a little bit of uh, Jewish content, not much. Uh, But he himself was Jewish and his parents had disappeared. Uh, He and his brother searched frantically to find them. Uh, And he was being given these projects to make really fluff films. And he said, I want to make something important. And he got an offer from a Swiss producer uh, to come to to Germany and, and tour the displaced persons camps and interview kids and work with the records. And in the process of doing that, he learned that his parents had both died in concentration camps uh, in Germany, or in Poland. Um, I could get in trouble saying, camps in Poland, not Polish camps, camps in Poland. Uh, In any case, uh, he became very interested in the Holocaust, what we call the Holocaust today. Uh, Working with his records, he's the most detail-oriented director. I mean, there's like 60, 70 volumes of material for the search, one of which is a whole collection of Yiddish publications uh, made by the Central Committee of Liberated Jews in the American Occupation Zone called From the Last Extermination. And indeed, one of the photo images from that enters into the search. Uh, The search is about DP kids Uh, And one DP kid in particular, a Czech kid, uh, whose parents apparently were political and they end up dying in in Auschwitz. The kid is there, Uh, somehow he managed to survive. Uh, But uh, unbeknownst to this kid, his mother is searching for him. And uh, the kid escapes the camp because he thinks that when they're transferring him over that uh, with other kids to a, a, a better facility, they think it's a gas, uh, a gas van and that they're all going to be gassed. Uh, so the Holocaust plays a big role here. Uh, and in any case, uh, what Zinneman does with this is then show the trauma that these kids have. The kid escapes the camp and gets adopted by, semi-adopted uh, by a uh, GI played by Montgomery Clift in his first role. Uh, everyone thinks Red River is, but this was actually his first role. Uh, and um, it's a sweet relationship, and of course, at the end, the mother, before he can take the kid away, the mother finds her son, and it all ends very happily. Uh, Let me show you a scene where they're interviewing the kids, and one of the things about this movie, though the kid playing the last kid in here, uh, Carol, uh, is an actor, all the other kids are actually displaced persons, and this is them being interviewed at the UNRWA headquarters.
2: Uh, Judge, would you mind putting out the lights? I've been showing your father some films and I'd like you to see them too.
3: Next,
4: It's her brother. Shabbat,
2: Rodrigo.
4: Nigdyśmy nikomu <stank> nic złego nie zrobili. Ojciec <of> mój był nauczycielem muzyki w Pietrkowi. Naprawdę nigdyśmy nikomu nic złego nie zrobili. Spytajcie <speaking up> się <speaking> o mojego <up> brata. Oni naszych rodziców wysłali do Bergen-Belsen. Bracie schował. A ja musiałam bardzo ciężko harować. Później znalazłam brata. Ja jestem dla niego wszystkim.
3: Father music teacher in George Poland. Both parents killed at Bergen-Belsen. Hmm. And she was a slave laborer.
4: Is that what
2: she said? Yes, sir.
4: I see. Miriam Spaghetti, parents domicile, Budapest, both gassed at Dakar. What did she say?
2: Her job was to sort out the clothes of the people had been gassed. She had to sort them according to size in a room next to the crematorium. She found her own mother's blouse among them.
4: Say something to her. Anything.
2: Mindindindora Pognek at Fortuny, Miriam. I Again, guess
1: that. She's Jewish. Say again.
3: Next, the little boy with the cap there.
2: Ce petit-là avec le bonnet.
4: I can't get anything out of this little
2: boy. But you, Get a idea.
4: Come along,
2: young man. We aren't going to hurt you. Not please, you, Bob to It seems I understood that. Jaksiana Zivash. Jaksiana Zivash. You know who The boy's afraid. Look at his eyes. Has nobody spoken to him yet? We tried. Perhaps the other boy could help us. Raoul. Yeah, Are
4: these two together? Are they brothers? No, they're just
2: friends.
4: Ça n'est pas la peine de vous ennuyer, monsieur. On ne peut pas lui faire dire quelque chose. Nous avons tous essayé.
2: He says there's nothing to be got from the boy.
4: He understands a lot of language, but only a few words. He knows even a little German. Is he German?
2: I don't think so. Sprichst du Deutsch? No, machen's doch nicht so schwer. Irgendwas wirst du doch wissen.
3: Take it easy.
2: Yes, of course. Du musst dich nicht fürchten, Kleiner. Es geschieht hier nichts. You want to help him? No, we're not. He doesn't know his name. I'll ask him where he comes from. Who is to be born? He
3: not
2: Who comes to here? Always the same thing. I don't know.
1: Okay. Um, you might say there's very little Jewish, but actually there's, very, uh, there's a lot Jewish in this film. We're told that the majority of kids are Jewish. Uh, There's a little boy who's pretending to be an altar boy and says he's Catholic, and then they discover, and then he claims that he's this kid when he hears the mother shows up. Uh, And it turns out he's Jewish, and he was told never to say he was Jewish. Uh, And so that becomes another aspect of it. Uh, And uh, there's a scene where we're we're told that the kids who are Jewish and who are going to Palestine are much better adjusted than the kids who don't know what their future is. And there's a goodbye scene uh, where there's a picture of Herzl, there's a big poster that says six million, uh, and they sing a song, which it's to the battle hymn of the Republic, and when I first heard it, I said, oh God, couldn't you have used, it turns out it was a very popular song among Jewish youth groups, they gave it Jewish words. Uh, And so um, he's captured the Jewishness uh, in the film. But the other thing he's captured is a kind of style of filmmaking that was true during this period, and it was what we call rubble films. People who filmed in the rubble of Europe uh, and uh, looked at kids uh, running around uh, wild often. Uh, In fact, there was no category for best foreign film during this period, Uh, so they created an honorary Oscar, and the first winner of that was Shoeshine which is an Italian movie which is very much like this of kids roaming and the bicycle thief. uh, And another one, um, Forbidden Games uh, in 1952, won this honorary award. But The Search won the award not only for an honorary award, there was an honorary Oscar for the child actor, uh, an Oscar for the screenplay uh, that was won it really was the first six, And if you haven't seen it, it, it holds up. It's really a good movie. So but you can buy it. You can buy it. It's, it's, it's been re-released. It's really a sweet and, and, and very poignant movie. Uh, in any case, now I want to look a little bit at what's happening elsewhere. Uh, There is a whole wave of films between 1947 and, actually 46 to 1950 of films about the experience of Jews and others under the Nazi occupation. Uh, Many of them are made by Jews who either were in camps or who had gone to the Soviet Union or somewhere else or had been in hiding and they made films, uh, some of them in the American sector, some of them in the Soviet sector of Germany in Poland, there was a whole bunch of films uh, that came out of, of survivors of concentration camps and of uh, Jewish children. There's a wonderful film called *Unser Kinder uh, from 1947 that's in, in uh, Yiddish. Uh, and so there's the, and one of my favorites, a film called Distant Journey about being uh, interned in Theresienstadt, uh, a, a Czech film from 1949. Uh, and. Probably the best of these films is a film called The Last Stage, sometimes called The Last Stop. It's a Polish film by a director by the name of Wanda Jakubowska. She wasn't Jewish. She was a political prisoner at Auschwitz. And she makes this film about Auschwitz in Auschwitz with former Auschwitz inmates in 1948. Uh, And it's really our first glimpse uh, into the Holocaust because the other films are about, you know, after the war, you know, kids, you know, in camps, uh, hunting Nazis, Uh, but this is, or the liberation of the camps. This is a film set in the concentration camp. Its heroine, uh, she's Jewish, her name is Marta. Uh, She knows lots of different languages, so she's made into an interpreter, and eventually she's recruited for the resistance. This is the theme of most of these Soviet zone movies is that the Jews are there, but they need the communists to tell them what to do. Uh, and I, I'm gonna show this clip of the train arriving at Auschwitz. Uh, and it's, um, it's remarkable, because it's one of these cases where a film, where we have the film, and we don't have um, other material. And so this scene ends up in the movie Night in Fog. <clears throat> And Night and Fog is, of course, the great first documentary about the concentration camps made in 1955. But there were no pictures of trains arriving at Auschwitz. There were photos, but there was no film. And so they used this film. And it ends up also in the diary of Anne Frank, uh, which I'll talk a little bit about later. And I am just looking for my sheet that tells me where the cues are in here. But let's hope it. it's to go to keep going. Yeah. I'm-
2: the
4: train is
1: coming. Would you know that this is not documentary footage? Now this was a film that ended up winning all sorts of international awards, the Venice Film Festival, the British Academy of Film and Television Arts, uh, the New York Film Circles Award, the Crystal Globe from a Czech uh, Film Festival. Uh, but it disappeared because uh, it was thought to be too sympathetic to Jews, and after 1948, Soviet policy was to uh, take all these movies that had been made between 45 and 49 and consign them uh, to the dust shelves. Uh, and so these movies disappeared. And if you go to my sheet, uh, if you'll notice, there's almost nothing between 1900, 1950 and 1955. And that's not because the, the Oscars just didn't have much to work with. The films weren't being made. Uh, there's a number of reasons. My uh, late colleague, you know, David Cesarani, uh, thinks that people were just tired of the subject, that it actually had been overdone. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if we can prove that, but he argues there was just a fatigue, the war. Uh, but it's possible. Uh, Another reason would be the decline in movie going and movies in general against television. Uh, You know, it went from half of Americans used to go to the film every week to see a film that dropped to one third by the end of the 1950s. Uh, A third reason, and I think it's maybe just as important, is that the Holocaust was being covered in television. Uh, Now, why television? New medium, but you had 18 hours to fill up And there were three ways that you got things about the Holocaust onto TV. Uh, The first was what was called the Sunday Morning Ghetto. And some of you may remember Lamp Unto My Feet and The Eternal Light. And there were either Ecumenical, or one of those is produced by Jewish Theological Seminary. And they produced early short films about the Holocaust. The first uh, adaptation of The Diary of Anne Frank was shown in 1952 on television. It had just come out in English. Uh, but they did the story of Anne Frank. Uh, so you have those uh, that are available. Uh, the second source is um, the uh, films that are, uh, that are the live drama anthologies. Uh, Armstrong Theater, uh, Playhouse 90. A lot of films, in fact later Holocaust films, have their origins in the 50s as being TV dramas. Uh, 1959, for example, uh, Judgment at Nuremberg is on television. Uh, And you have a wonderful little British film I like called Conspiracy of Hearts that's on television in 1956, becomes a British movie uh, in 1960. So you have um, these displacing, and then you have this uh, kind of strange area. Well, it's not strange. Documentaries, wartime documentaries. I remember... Uh, growing up, my father loved documentaries, and we watched *Victory at Sea*. And the 20th century, uh, 20th century had a show on the Nuremberg Trials, uh, and there was a show called *The Twisted Cross*, which was about the Nazis. And so there were things that were coming out then. And then a littler thing, but it's worth going online to see this uh, is the first reality show, *This Is Your Life*. Uh, had a Holocaust, actually had several Holocaust survivors, but you can get the, uh, vi- stream the video of the first one, Hannah Koner, K-O-E-H-N-E-R, and uh, they reunite her with relatives she didn't, didn't know were still living and with people she was in the camps, but they don't know how to deal with her. I mean, they, they, they clearly, they, Ralph Edwards doesn't understand what the Holocaust was about, uh, but it's there. So there isn't much, uh, though there are a couple, a couple of sort of movies that have, you know, are influenced by the Holocaust. Uh, the one that, uh, primary, di- is a, it was a little film noir thing called The House on Telegraph Hill, which spends the first 10 minutes in a concentration camp. Uh, but we don't know whether the character is Jewish, in fact she probably isn't, her friend may be Jewish who dies, uh, and then it just becomes a film war thriller Uh, as she goes to the United States, and there's other movies like Forbidden Games, which won the honorary for best foreign film, about a young girl whose parents are killed as they're fleeing Paris, Uh, and uh, she gets adopted by a farm family, uh, and uh, her dog had died in the escape, and so she wants to bury her dog, and they, they decide the two kids Uh, They're going to uh, create a cemetery for dead animals and they put up crucifixes, but it's also clear that this girl doesn't know anything about Christianity and uh, at least some film critics think she's Jewish and the last scene she's taken away from these parents and we see her in a, could be a train station, some sort of facility wearing a tag as an unaccompanied minor Uh, and that's how the film ends, another great film by the way if you've never seen Uh, In any case, the biggie is The Diary of Anne Frank. But before I go to The Diary of Anne Frank, I want to show you what else happened, because in 1956, you have the first Oscar, official Oscar, not honorary, for Best Foreign Film. And then there are a number of films that come out in Europe. I'm not even going to try to account for that. Uh, One of them is called The Devil Strikes at Night, which is nominated in 1957, a German film about a serial murderer in Nazi Germany, uh, and how um, there's a detective who's certain he's on the trail, but the SS has arrested someone else, uh, and they don't want to admit they're wrong, so this guy keeps on killing, and one of his potential victims is a Jewish woman hiding uh, in an apartment. Uh, He doesn't get to her, fortunately. Uh, But in 1960, there's a number of films. There's two films nominated for foreign films and uh, for best foreign film. And I think this is one of the uh, sort of interesting things is it's kind of like Hollywood outsources the Holocaust to foreign filmmakers. Uh, Like they have more legitimacy. Schindler's List is the only American movie to have ever won a an Oscar that's about the Holocaust. But there's a slew of them that have won the best foreign language film. And I'm gonna show you again, this is a film that gets much more attention elsewhere, but it gets attention in the United States in 1960. It's a film called Capo. Capo is set in a concentration camp, uh, and it is about a, a young girl, Nicole, who she and her parents are deported from Paris, Uh, They end up in Auschwitz, Uh, the parents and her brother are killed the first day, and she manages to uh, get an identity as an asocial rather than a Jew, and then rises to the rank of a capo uh, in a labor camp, and is as brutal as anybody else, but then falls in love with a captured Soviet soldier, and uh, is converted to the cause of the resistance. Uh, She ends up dying in a planned escape, and her last words are the Shema. Um, Let me show you the, I'm gonna show you the trailer because it sort of shows how you want it to show that this is terrible, but on the other hand, you don't want to drive people away, so you have to have the love story at the core.
0: Now remember that black triangle on your uniform is identification for criminals. Political prisoners wear the red triangle, like mine. Jews wear the yellow star. But the black triangles are treated a lot better than anyone else. The cream. It's among these the SS select the trustees of the camp. They're called capots.
4: Capot. The film which obtained a smashing success at the Venice Festival. Nine times in the course of its projection, it was interrupted by unanimous, thundering and endless applause. The final ovation lasted 12 minutes, beating all records at Venice, testifying to the enthusiasm and excitement of audience participation in the gripping story of Capone.
2: Mama, mama, no. No.
4: Capone, in the midst of hate, violence and brutality, which make up the tragic atmosphere of desperation, anguish and terror where men and their conscience are annihilated, there is only one thing that cannot be destroyed. Love. When I first met you,
3: I had no idea of escaping. You know that. Yes. The things I said then, it wasn't to persuade you to help us. It was simply that I began to fall in love with you. I love you so much.
4: Capote, a story which seems to belong to the age of barbarism, but which is instead the story of yesterday, still burning and alive. Capote, a vivid, blood-curdling evocation of a period and an ethics that will forever remain among the grimmest in human history. Capote, a name which, like an inexorable and pitiless nightmare, accompanied the tragic odyssey of a humanity broken by suffering and despair.
1: Gives you an idea, Uh, these movies, foreign films by the way, uh, the U.S. film industry tried to keep them out. uh, And it didn't really want them competing uh, for Oscars. But after the war, the issue was raised because British films, J. Arthur Rank films in particular, Hamlet won the best uh, film uh, in 1948, uh, they couldn't keep them out entirely. Uh, but American audiences, you didn't see these films because they went to art house cinemas. They were either dubbed, as this one was, poorly, uh, or with subtitles. Americans don't like subtitles. And so these films were always at a disadvantage. But this is a tough film. I mean, this is about a woman who basically sold, sells her soul. Uh, and if you don't recognize the actress, it's Susan Strasberg. And why is that of importance? Because Susan Strasberg is the actress who premiered the role of Anne Frank on Broadway. And she was being considered uh, for that role uh, at this time. Uh, But she loses her innocence. She becomes a prostitute for the SS, and that's how she's able to get their job as a trustee. She becomes brutal to others. And the criticism of the movie was... This is Bosley Carruthers from the New York Times he says while it starts off impressively as a French girl being snatched from her Paris home and hauled off with her frightened parents in motor vans and freight cars to a concentration camp it never projects its diminutive hero heroine onto the spiritual plane of little Anne Frank the child should remain the standard victim of outrage and shock no more or less It is noticeable that the intimations of brutality and horror increase in proportion with the rapidity in which the character of the girl deteriorates. Anne is the model for the Holocaust. We don't see much violence. It's all off screen. Uh, She doesn't have her spirit broken. Uh, She's the girl next door. Uh, And so The Diary of Anne Frank becomes the first big winner uh, nominated for many, many awards, but it only won one major one, uh, and that was Shelley Winters uh, for her role as Mrs. Van Damme, so, which some people in retrospect feel is kind of an anti-Semitic stereotype. I think she's great in it, but, and that's how Anne portrays Mrs. Van Damme. Uh, but in any case, uh, here's where the director and how the film is made is important. Uh, the director is George Stevens. He was the head of the U.S. Army Signal Corps. He made the film, Nazi you know, uh, death camps, Nazi, Nazi death mills that was used as evidence at the Nuremberg trials. Uh, he filmed the liberation of Dachau and Nordhausen. Uh, he was profoundly affected by it and he, he never made a war movie, but he called this his war movie. This was the movie about his experiences. Otto Frank was his compatriot, his consulter. Otto Frank, as you might know, managed his daughter, he controlled the narrative of his daughter's diary. Uh, And so, um, I don't know if any of you have ever seen The Definitive Anne Frank. It's about a thousand pages long. It's the diary, unedited, three versions. She had a lot of time on her hands. She wrote a lot. He picked and chose partly not to offend people who were still living or the memory of those who had died, uh, but also to disguise some of the things that weren't acceptable, like Anne had a a lesbian infatuation with one of her girlfriends. Uh, That's been added, by the way, in the new version, the Wendy Kesselman version of The Diary of Anne Frank. Uh, But um, basically, he wanted his daughter's story to be a universal story, not a Jewish story. Uh, And George Stevens and the play before it, Hackett and Goodrich, the uh, playwrights who wrote the 1956 Broadway play, wanted that as well. So much of, you know, there's a famous comment in the diary where Anne says, I know we Jews have been victims in the past and we will continue to be victims. That's, I know some people have been persecuted in the movie and in the play. I know some people have been persecuted in the past. And yet the movie has a lot more Jewishly going for it uh, as you rewatch it, uh, than I think people give it credit for. Anne begins the story, actually it begins with Otto Frank returning from the camps and there's people with striped uniforms on the truck with him uh, and then we start the diary and Anne enumerates all the things that Jews were forbidden to do. Uh, they're all wearing stars when they come in. Peter tries to cut off the star uh, then, uh, When Mr. Dussel comes in, he talks about the Jews being picked up uh, on the streets of Amsterdam. They see Jews being picked up from their window. Uh, there is a lot more that is Jewish in there, uh, and it's that the audience has become more attuned to the Holocaust and Jewishness, that when we look back, it seems like, man, he effaced all this. I'm going to show you the trailer, and you'll see... Um, And they also say, well, you you don't see her go to the camp. So we do see one scene of her friend. She's having a nightmare of her friend in a concentration camp standing amidst other women in a sort of catatonic state swaying. That's from the last stop, from the last stage, uh, and was put in there. Uh, So let me show you this, and you'll, you'll see. The danger, I think, is there, but the love story, the teenage coming of age all of that, the first kiss, that's all there too.
2: This is the way that you must live until it is over if you are to survive.
4: were certain that Margaret would never kiss anyone unless she was engaged to them. And I'm sure, too, that Mother never touched men before Father. But I don't know.
2: for me the capsules
4: they're earplugs
2: they went in they went in <laughs>
1: There certainly are mixed messages there, but clearly they're Jewish. though the scene the uh, Hanukkah scene has often been criticized. They're singing in English. It's not really the words and the melody. But if you look at Anne's notation, it's two sentences. We celebrated Hanukkah. We lit the candles, we gave each other gifts. That's it. She spends a lot more time on Christmas. Uh, Anne was vaguely Jewish. She's just not as ethnic as we wanted her to be. Uh, I'm sure many of you know the Mayor Levin story, who spent his own, almost his entire life trying to get the rights to do a kind of Zionist, you know, Anne Frank, uh, and lost the case. He he wrote the first uh, radio play, uh, but it's it's a lot tougher movie, and people say, well, you know, but it's so tame. So I'm going through the records of the Diary of Anne Frank and up at the uh, Herrick Library, which is the Academy's library. And there's a whole list of awards, and awards kind of show you, you know, if you win other awards, then it's going to help you. The first award is from the Ghetto Fighters Museum in Israel and the Holocaust Survivors Organization in the United States. Now, that might have been, oh, thank God that someone's finally making a movie uh, about this, but Jewish organizations, eventually the Catholic Church, eventually a, a school system Uh, a a company that distributed films to schools, purchases the rights, all of that is there. This is a movie that really does shape Holocaust consciousness. Uh, But for us, the important thing is there's something else happening here in terms of the Oscars in this period. American films until until really 1966 when we go to the new rating system, uh, couldn't show a lot of violence. Uh, Most films in the 1950s were technicolor, but we have this idea that you show the Holocaust, you're going to show it in black and white. uh, is already there. Uh, And um, our ethnic consciousness has changed. The organization that supervised the movies, it was a Jewish advisory organization, uh, so that the portrayal of Jews was positive, loved this film. And they said, we're so glad you universalized her story. Otherwise, it would have been a Jewish wailing wall. Um, that's their statement. Uh, and so uh, this fits into what the Holocaust was then. But the 60s, things started, the, the studio system starts breaking up. The censorship system is no longer enforced as much as it was. Its main uh, uh, critic, a man by the name of Joseph Breen, had retired in 1954. Uh, and you start getting European pictures and American pictures that are sexier, more violent, that are all these things. And then you have a whole series of films in the 60s. Judgment at Nuremberg, The Pawnbroker*, Ship of Fools. You have, and these are films that get nominated. Don't win all the awards, but they certainly get lots of nominations. And you have other films. The Shop on Main Street wins Best Foreign Film. The Garden of the Finzi-Continis in 1971. The foreign films start coming and coming and coming. So these are statuettes of limitations, but they paved the way for much more forthright and frank portrayals of the Holocaust. Thank you. Edward G. Robinson and Orson Welles. Yeah, and it has been on um, Turner Classic yeah. Movies quite a bit. Um, yeah. To what extent was um, uh, anti-Semitism during the '40s, '50s, and early '60s uh, responsible for downplaying that? I know that the the um, movie industry was—the Jews in the movie industry were very uh, aware mm-hmm. of not wanting to be. Uh, Jews at all in many cases and, and certainly uh, anti-Semitism in general? Um, you know, there are a lot of films, and I'm, I'm working on a whole other subject on Irish-Jewish films. Uh, and, you know, 1946, a remake of A.B.'s Irish Rose comes out, a film called Big City, which I just showed my wife some of the scenes, opens with Col Nidre. Um, so there are Jewish themes in the immediate post-war period. In the 50s, there's a kind of blandness. And it disappears. I mean, the, the remake of the jazz singer, uh, and it's always a tension. You know, he's in love with this non-Jewish girl, Irish dancer, uh, Irish singer. Uh, now it's Peggy Lee in the 1951 or 52 version. But Peggy Lee, Lee, it turns out, is Jewish uh, in the film. And you do. need a *Marjorie Morningstar*, yeah. but it isn't until the late '50s that you start getting more uh, in-depth yeah. pictures of, uh, uh, of you know the last angry man.
4: Yeah. I have to say, one of the most striking, gut-wrenching scenes from a Holocaust movie I've ever seen. I just saw today. Um, in the search with the interview of those children. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a scene from Schindler's List or any of his other films that tore at me more than that, particularly knowing that most of those children were actual displaced persons. And when we talk about, I think you just mentioned, later films becoming more um, accurate, and and I forgot the exact adjectives you used to describe the, the later films. But to me, that film um, managed in a, in a way more uh, emotional to hit me than anything mm-hmm. I've ever seen. Very
2: true.
1: Yeah, and by the way, you try to see a Kinder if you can. Uh, you can buy it from the National Jewish Film Center, but I think there might be a streaming copy you can get on YouTube. And it's about this. Famous Yiddish comedy team that spent the time in Russia in the Soviet Union during the war. And they come back and they're entertaining. And one of the groups they entertain are these Jewish orphans. And the Jewish or and they sing a song about the ghetto. And the Jewish orphans say, You have it all along. You don't understand what and so they end up living in the orphanage with these kids and learn their stories. They they persuade the kids to act out their stories to be. And it's really quite impressive. And there's a lot of people, by the way, who say that was exploitative. And the same thing with the search. Yeah? Um, this whole thing brings to mind the, the question, uh, are there any serious studies about all the factors, of Jewish survival and uh, reaction to what was happening, to account for the assimilationist and, anti, and, mm-hmm. and silence about this? This would, this would seem to be a monumental study. Well, actually, there's quite a bit. <laughs> if anything, I have a colleague over there. Um, we're overwhelmed, I think, with what comes out on the Holocaust. Uh, and there's lots on, on Holocaust memory in the United States. There's a lot uh, on uh, the inaction or the action. It, it's uh, depending on your point of view. There's more happening there than you think there is. Uh, in the 30s and 40s but there's there's quite a bit uh, out on that uh, it was a big debate a couple of years ago there was you know these two books one was uh, Tom Dougherty's book uh, Hitler and the uh, Hollywood and Hitler and the other one was called a Collaboration by Ben Irwan, and Irwan says you know the studios <coughs> literally collaborated to so that they could sell their films in, in Germany and Dougherty takes a much more um, upbeat. Uh, uh, tone and, and there's two new books that just came out about the studios. This is a great story. The studios recruit spies who infiltrate neo Nazi movements in Hollywood and uh, in the 1930s and pay for these spies. So it, it, it's a really complex story.
4: Yeah. Uh, when you're talking about this whole subject, several years ago I was at the Roosevelt Library. Mm. And um, there's a room in there, and there's lots of pictures, dialogue, so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. And there's a picture of Eisenhower, and he makes this statement to the the film crew, whatever the people that uh, liberated the camp. He says, get all this on film. Right, right. And that life.
1: Yeah, and almost all the studio heads, by the way, a month later are visiting camps. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't do much. In term, you know, if you're thinking, you know, Diary of Anne Frank, she's still in you know, it's the first mo- big American movie in which is set in the Holocaust uh, and uh, about a Jewish character. Because the others are about, you know, the displaced persons and the main character is really Montgomery Cliff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh,
4: I never realized the extent to which Anne Frank had controlled the diary, namely that he's presented whatever he would like. Right. Uh, are there uh, others now
2: who have access, or what is...?
4: Well, like, like I, I said, sort of, there, if, if you want,
1: there's what's called the definitive Anne Frank, which is uh, the definitive diary. Uh, and it's huge. Uh, and, um, and you can see her different drafts and, and what she was thinking. But she, you know, this was not a family that was deeply Jewish in the By way we've come to think about politics. You know, uh, identity politics. Um, yeah, they were you know Austrian Jews who were pretty well uh, a- assimilated. And um, Anne, you know, her sister was a little bit more Jewish than she was. Uh, but um, you know, Otto wanted her story to be universal, mm, yeah. and. That's what he, you know, he did. Yeah. Oh, yes. You made so reference to the fact that there's no current nominees for Holocaust films at this time. And yet, anti-Semitic acts in the country and mm-hmm. anti-Israel sentiment in the country and worldwide probably is at an all-time high. How do you counter this? Well, that, what I was saying, trying to say is this year there are, there are no. It's really the first time in a long time that there isn't a the Holocaust movie and there's really only one movie with uh, identifiable Jewish content this year, uh, Call Me By Your Name. Um, by a Jewish author. By a Jewish author, but also they make a point. The guy's wearing a Jewish star at the beginning. And, it's a Jewish story. And they have you know a menorah at the end that they like. Um, but that's the only obvious content. Um, there was a movie. That should have been nominated and should have won for best uh, foreign film this year, called In the Fade. Uh, and it's about neo Nazis uh, in Germany and about who killed a, a woman's son and about the trial and trying to get justice for them. Uh, they're Turkish in that case, you know, the woman is Turkish. Um, but uh, why that didn't make it, I don't know. But up until last year, there were lots. Um, The connection with anti-Semitism, there are, you know, next month, Radon Entebbe is coming out. I mean, you know, there are movies that are coming out. Um, uh, Last year was uh, Denial, uh, was a movie that probably should have done better uh, with the awards and didn't. uh, The year before, I mean, again, another movie, uh, Woman in Gold. Uh, So we, you know, there are these movies that are being made. Interestingly enough, there aren't, I, I write a, about neo-Nazi movies. Um, so I watch a lot of neo-Nazi movies, movies about neo-Nazis. And if you want to see a really good movie, because they are being made, see a movie called Imperium with Daniel Radcliffe. This movie was made a year before um, uh, Charlottesville, and it has a scene that is, Charlotte predicts Charlottesville. Um, it's, it, it's worth seeing. Uh, and those films are being made in Germany. Uh, so it's not that this is going undetected. It's just these aren't winning, getting nominated or winning awards.
4: Yeah. Um, one thing that I wanted to mention, University Synagogue is going to have another speaker about Hollywood and anti-Nazi activities.
1: That's Steve Ross? March. Yes. Yeah, he's Professor great. He's the one who did one of the books on, these, on yeah, the so spies. That,
2: that's coming up. When? Uh, March 15th,
4: 16th. Mm-hmm. No, Friday night during the uh, service. So I thought. Um, I lost my train of thought. There was something else. Oh, uh, about the producers wanting mm-hmm. to sell films in Germany mm-hmm. still at the time. But weren't the Warner
1: Brothers. At least the ones that. The Warner Brothers that buffed trend. the trend. But a lot of studios had been kicked out. United Artists was the first studio that was kicked out. They're the ones who made The Great Dictator. Warner Brothers um, allowed it to, you know, there was this big Hollywood anti Nazi movement. And Warner Brothers let them broadcast on the radio station, gave them free time. Uh, and it made really the first movies dealing with American. Uh, again, racism, not necessarily anti Jewish, uh, but one about a, a group like the KKK with uh, Humphrey Bogart called the Black Legion. Uh, um, the story of Emile Zola, which, you know, uh, though it doesn't have a lot about anti Semitism in it's clear that um, that's what's happening. Uh, there's uh, a couple of others, and then they make the first great, you know, the first real anti-Nazi movie, Confessions of a Nazi Spy. Uh, but a lot of this has to do with American nativism. We don't want foreigners coming in, so if we admit something's happening overseas, then you know we're going to feel the moral responsibility, there's a quota system, American neutrality. Uh, you know, isolationism, we don't want to be involved in the wars there, Hollywood shouldn't take a stance. And this is the pressure that's on Hollywood, it's coming from within, and not necessarily from the studio heads, but from the person who ran what's called the Production Code Administration, which was the censorship board, internal censorship board of, uh, uh, for Hollywood films. You had to get certified to get your films out in, in studios by them. And I've worked with their records, and they have these records. One of the rules is you're not supposed to speak um, maliciously or unjustly about people of another nation or rulers of another nation. Okay. Um, and this guy, Joseph Breen, took that very seriously, uh, who was the head censor. One more question. Yeah. I, I was just going to
4: say, when I was in Israel in the 50s and early 60s, there was a very anti-victim, anti-Yiddish, um, and not wanting to talk about the Holocaust. It was all the soldier, the hero, and so on. Did that play a role in the fact that there weren't a lot of movies being made about the Holocaust? Actually, Israel is one of
1: the latest countries to come to dealing with the Holocaust directly. It deals with survivors, and the narrative is, these survivors really only have meaning when they come to Israel. And, and life in the diaspora is terrible and horrible. And the Holocaust is just one part of that. And it takes until the 1980s for the Israelis to make a film set in the Holocaust. Um, so it's what you're detecting is definitely true. because Except for certain things like the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising or stuff like that. you know That they like. But they don't make movies about it. They focus on their own struggles.
0: Thank you.